Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So tonight I want to look at some very clever people, Greeks, seeking wisdom. Because now Paul, having been misunderstood by these people in Athens, has been invited to appear before the Areopagus in verse 19. He's standing now in front of the most exclusive court in the ancient world. The Areopagus, of course, if you know anything about Athens, the Areopagus was actually a place. The Greek there, Arios, Pagos, uh, the hill of Ares. Ares, the Greek god of war, the same as Mars, the Greek god of war. So it's referred to here in the text a little bit later on as Mars Hill. But there's also a council, a group of people who call themselves the Areopagus. And that's who Paul was standing in front of. Um, they were a council. They were a court. In Roman times, the, when, when Acts was taking place, the Areopagus didn't actually meet in the Areopagus or on the Areopagus. It met in the royal portico in the Agora, in the marketplace. So, in fact, when Paul was escorted to the court, it may just simply have been the case of inviting him to come indoors. It was made up of about 30 people. 30 people who were drawn from a highly select sample of Athenian society. There were ex-office holders in the city, men of high reputation. In Paul's day, its job was simply to try cases of murder, to regulate the public morals of the city. It was a bit like appearing before the, the U.S. Senate. I was almost going to say a bit like appearing before the House of Lords, but I'm afraid that institution is greatly devalued in recent days, isn't it? With all the crony peers, the House of Lords would be a very pale shadow of the court that met on Mars Hill in Athens. So let's think about it. Before this exclusive group of philosophers and sages and high-born intellectuals, all the most clever people in the world. For anyone who was an intellectual in the ancient world wanted to come to Athens. And before these people, Paul must state his faith and proclaim Christ and him crucified. So tonight we're just going to look at his opening remarks going to look at the clever people that he's talking to and we're going to ask ourselves the question is it possible for someone to be so clever that they miss the most important thing in life let's see these Athenians let's notice that they had idle curiosity they had an impotent religion and they had ignorant hearts. The Athenians had idle curiosity. Look at verse 19. They took him and brought him onto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know 
therefore, what these things mean. Two wee things to note here. When they're asking about these strange things, the gospel always seems strange to the ungodly. I wonder, have you noticed that? You are bringing some strange things to our ear. I mean, Paul is simply preaching here about Jesus, about his death and about his resurrection. And to an ungodly crowd, that seems to be strange. A couple of months ago, I sat with a girl in a funeral parlor in Belfast. We were talking about her late mother. And she was telling me what a good person her mother had been. I'm sure she had. She'd had a hard life. She'd been bringing up her four children on her own. She had worked double shifts to pay the bills. She'd put them all through school and all through college. She'd kept going even when everything was against her. She'd lived a determinedly independent life right up into her 90s. And even I was starting to admire her personality and her fortitude even though I'd never met her. And then the daughter said to me, would you read this wee poem in the service? Now, I don't do poems. <laughs> I don't do sentimentality at all. So she handed me this poem, and I said, no. Oh, she says it's a lovely wee poem. And I cast my eye over it. I said, no, I'm not reading that. Why not? Because it's not true. Why is it not true? Look at the last line. Some of these people, you know, they just simply trawl the internet looking for funeral poems. The last line of it says that God always takes the best. I said to her, that's not true. If that were true, then none of us would ever be in heaven. For our best will never be good enough to match God's standards. Thankfully, God doesn't take the best. He takes sinners, sinners who are saved by grace, sinners like you and sinners like me. And we must repent of our sin and trust in the Lord and believe in Christ. That's basic stuff, isn't it? You'd have learned that in Sunday school. But she looked at me. And I have never seen such a blank, uncomprehending look on someone's face. I might as well have been speaking in double Dutch. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul writes, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Isn't that so? These Athenians, they love new things. They love novelty. Look at verse 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They spent all their time standing in the marketplace, in the agora, idly speculating about new ideas and, and philosophies. And unlike that young girl in the funeral home who really didn't like what I was saying to her. The Athenians loved novelty. They loved to hear something new. Not so that they could commit to it, of course. Not so that they could repent and believe it, but simply as a form of intellectual stimulation. 
It's like someone who is not a Christian enrolling on a theology course in a conservative Bible college, if you can find one, and doing a three or four theology degree course, three or four year theology degree course, purely as an academic discipline. What would be the point of it? It's bad enough when the ungodly display this fascination for novelty over the truth that's revealed in God's word. But when it occurs in the visible church, the consequences are serious. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned on to fables. And I think that's fairly much a description of the present visible church. Still, the Lord used this thirst for novelty. It was because the Athenians had such a fascination with new things that Paul had this opportunity to address them, first of all in the marketplace and then into the council to talk to them there. So the Athenians had this idle curiosity, but they also had an impotent religion, a powerless religion. Let's go back to our text. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions. Let's pause there. Paul's opening remarks to the Areopagus are very gracious remarks. I've no doubt the Athenians might have taken them as a compliment because, in fact, while our authorised version here is saying that he's accusing them of being too superstitious, the actual Greek text is saying, you are very religious people, acknowledging that they are religious. And, you know, they probably thought that was a good thing. They probably thought that being very superstitious is a good thing. But what did Paul actually think of their religion? Now, think about this. Paul is a Jew, and he's been trained as a Pharisee. And from his earliest days as a child, as soon as he is able to understand, he is being taught the Torah. He's being taught as a basic principle that there is only one God besides whom there is no other. It had been brought up in the manner of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Jewish the portion of scripture that the Jews refer to as the Shema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. A little bit later down that, those verses, it tells us that we are to teach those verses to our children. Teach the law as we were to think and talk about the Lord as we walk along the way, as we sit in our houses. We're to teach those things. Paul would have been taught that. And Paul would have been utterly repelled and distressed 
by the Greek's idolatrous religion. Do you remember back a fortnight ago when we talked about this? Or do you remember the CD that I gave you to introduce you to Athens? Athens was a city full of idols. Remember that statement? It's easier to find a God in Athens than to find a man. Literally true. Athens had a population of 10,000 people. And there were 30,000 false idols in the city. Statues. They were everywhere. People bowed down to them and worshipped them, contrary to the second commandment, which teaches us, I shall not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20, we get an insight into Paul, what Paul would be thinking. He says there, But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. There you are. These people are building their idols and they're worshipping their idols. But in fact, what they're really doing is a deep form of superstition. It's a deep form of demonic worship. It's a deep form of of idolatry indeed. And like the Romans, these Athenians professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. Like the Romans, they erected statues and likenesses of created things and they revered them and they respected them and they were idolatrous it was a religion of idolatry but it was a religion of futility wasn't it I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious you're very religious people There's a religion in Athens, but it's a godless religion. Such a thing is certainly possible. The Oxford academic Richard Dawkins is well known for his godless views, isn't he? You'll have heard of him. He's one of the so-called new atheists. There's, There's always been people who have classed themselves as Atheists or agnostics. But I suppose by and large the practice of their atheism simply involved not going to church. Practical atheists. There they are in the Lord's day. Washing their cars. See them. And they're cutting their grass. I heard one this afternoon. Even though it's miserable down where I live today. Well, it's miserable where I live every day, but today was especially miserable because of the weather. And there they were, cutting the grass. You can hear the lawnmower going. Coming out of church this morning after our morning service, what went up the road but one of these cohorts of cyclists all out in the road, cycling along on the Lord's Day. One of our church members had actually suggested uh, a number of years ago that we should get a huge big sign for ups outside the church 
and it would write on it, Sunday cyclists, get off your bike and come to church. Could have it up yet. That's generally what you see, practical atheism. But these new atheists are different. These the, the Richard Dawkins and the type. Dawkins is infamous, for example, for his books. His book, The God Delusion, has sold well over three million copies in the English language alone. Dawkins appears in debates. He does interviews. He's um, extremely belligerent when he comes up against Christians. He will simply sit and mock them. Uh, it's not a, never a very rational debate. He just sits and mocks you in debate. I've only known one man who really got the better of him over here uh, as far as put, keeping him quiet was concerned. Atheism, militant atheists have even been buying advertising spaces and Buses in London to spread their message of godless religion. And atheism even has its heretics. Talking about Dawkins on the 20th of April 2021, uh, Pike in the Spectator magazine noted that Dawkins has been declared a heretic. I heard this uh, in a podcast a while back and I checked it up, it's true. Dawkins is now a heretic, an atheist heretic. The atheists even have heretics. The American Humanist Association has had, way back in 1996, had awarded Dawkins the coveted Humanist of the Year title. Imagine getting that. And this year, they took it back off him. They they dehumanized him. That probably wouldn't be right, sure it wouldn't. They took it back over him. Do you know what he did? How How he fell to be a heretic to the atheists. Here's what he did. He made a statement observing that people who identified as transgender, men who said they were women, or women that said they were men, he said that that was fraudulent. Silly man. He should know better than that. And then he went on even worse and said it was strange how black Identity can be assumed when it's convenient. Make shades of Meghan Markle, maybe. And because of those statements, the American Humanist Association declared him an atheist heretic and took his award off him. You see, it's a religion, isn't it? Atheism is a religion. They're evangelical in the way that they proclaim their religion. They are even setting standards of orthodoxy for atheists. And do you know that in London at the minute, there are actually atheist churches? There's a church in London, an atheist church, that has over 300 members. And it meets in an old disused church building. And it sings pop songs instead of hymns. And they have a reading. I read at one service, they read a portion from Alice in Wonderland. A talk is giving, given about evolution or something life-affirming. It's a wicked parody of prayer. They have moments of wonderment and bow themselves for contemplation of life. Unsurprisingly, there's no talk of what happens when life's over, when this life ends. 
when we have to leave it all behind and stand before God in judgment. Empty, false religion. And empty, false religion is the religion of death. I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. The Athenians were religious people. Religious in the sense that those Londoners in that church are religious. A pointless, Christless, crossless religion that will be utterly useless in eternity. It's blasphemous, it's idolatrous, and it's futile. And it leads to the eternal loss of the soul. And yet, I wonder if I could even suggest to you that perhaps some of the religious people in Northern Ireland are no better than some of those atheists. Religion doesn't save. Lastly, the Athenians had ignorant hearts. This is where we finished our reading. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, Paul had obviously been walking round Athens. He had arrived by the port, as we talked about last time. The port of Athens is called Piraeus. He'd come to the port, he'd landed off a ship, he'd sailed down from Berea. He got off the ship and he would have been confronted in the port of Piraeus with a huge statue of Nephew, the god of the sea. And as he walked up towards Athens into the city, more and more of these idols would be along the road. Now, Paul was a cultured man. I'd say Paul would probably have appreciated the, 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 the structure of the city, the masonry, the art, the architecture, the, the craft of the sculptures. He was looking at great workmanship. And, and looking at objects of beauty doesn't make you a, a participant in the idolatry of these things. Well, at least I hope not. When we were in Honeymoon in 1977, we went on a tour of a city in Spain. And part of the tour was a guided, guided tour around a, a big historic cathedral, a Roman Catholic cathedral. So the guide gathered everybody up outside and he paraded us all into this cathedral and we were warned not to take any photographs whatsoever inside. And I wondered why. And then we were escorted into a room at the rear of the building. And it was lined with glass cases. And it was full of silver and gold chalices and stones and jewels and tiaras and statues that were worth whatever. And the guide, with great pride, informed us that many of the items in that room were so priceless that they could... This is why they wouldn't let you take photographs, because they wouldn't allow those photographs outside the building. Everyone looked at this treasury with wonderment. So the tour came to an end. We got back to the door of the cathedral and the guide is standing at the door with his collecting plate 
looking for tips. People thrusting it out. He was, wasn't a bit shy. People were coming at the door of the cathedral and was shoving this plate in front of them. And then he made the mistake of shoving it in front of me. <laughs> yeah, and, and he poked it out at me. And I looked at him malevolently. And he sort of pulled the plate back a wee bit. Uh, and my wife was grabbing my arm. She would only be married a few months. And, and she was trying to drag me on because I embarrassed her. And I said, you lot of all that gold and silver stashed away in there and people from all over the world are starving and you're looking for a tip from me. Is this the same church, the church that claims to be the church of Peter? Peter who said, silver and gold have I none. At that point I was physically dragged by the wife out of earshot. Wasn't the only time she dragged me out of churches, mind you. Paul seen their empty, vain religion and he used it to great effect. For the Athenians, it was a fantastic application, although we'll see the wisdom of it in a couple of weeks' time. These people are the cleverest people in the world. They're living in the most intellectual environment in the world of their day, and yet by their own admission... There is something they don't know. There is something really important. The word unknown here in the scriptures is our word agnostos, agnostic. They don't know. Paul was being sarcastic. I perceive that you are very religious people and you don't know who God is. The people who knew everything. The greatest philosophers, the greatest thinkers, the greatest playwrights and the greatest poets, the greatest politicians were forced to admit that they knew nothing when it came to who created this world and why they were here. What would happen when life ends? Do you know you can have all the knowledge in the world and many people do. You can have, we're talking about clever people here. You can have the best education. You can have the highest level of degrees. You can have the highest IQ. You can be a member of Mensa. You can have a fantastic job. You can be at the top of your career. Jesus said, for what is a man profited? What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What does it matter if you are the most erudite person that ever walked the streets of Belfast or Northern Ireland? You don't know who God is because you've never met him. You don't know him. The unknown God. What benefit is it to be the cleverest, most qualified, peer-reviewed, widely published university professor 
in the city of Oxford and be ignorant of the God who created you before whom you will one day stand and give an account of your life. And I think that sums up Northern Ireland today. So Paul's important witness before the Areopagus has begun. Next week, God willing, we'll see his strategy. And we'll see how the sermon develops. Meanwhile, my underlying thesis is simply that these Athenians are not so very different from every modern ungodly member of society. They have everything the world can offer them. And they have nothing for eternity.